All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Well, welcome to this episode of Making the Argument. It has been a very busy week for the Supreme Court. I've been pretty happy with a lot of their decisions, but uh, some of my colleagues on the left have not. And in fact, there's been a lot of uh, Twitter trash talk, and some of it has been advocating violence. Some of it has been overtly racist. We're going to talk about the left's reaction, not just to Roe, but some other decisions that have been made. We're also going to talk about what is the actual role of the Supreme Court, because you have some people on the left claiming that this is conservative activism in the court. We're going to equip you with the arguments to be able to combat that, and we're going to do it a little bit different this time. We're actually going to have a back and forth with myself and Hamilton where he's going to ask some of the most common questions, and we're going to equip you with the answers that you need to be able to win these arguments in your own discussions. All that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. It's been a busy week for SCOTUS, but it's been a busy week for Team Freitas as well. We apologize for not having an episode out Tuesday, but we did put out a episode on Friday. So if you haven't listened to that, be sure to go back and watch that. But if you like the arguments that are made in this episode, let us know on YouTube in the comments section. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We appreciate you listening and spending this hour with us. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a good person with us is my beautiful, lovely wife, Tina, Queen of the Bees. Hello, everybody. Resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hello. And producer of producers, Nick Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. It's a pleasure as always. All right. So let's go ahead and jump right into this. Let's go ahead and look at our uh, our first um, article that we have up here. And um, what I find interesting about this is this is the title of the article, it's actually from Newsweek of all places. It says, what the disgusting racism against Justice Thomas reveals about the anti-racist side. So let's go ahead and uh, scroll down here a little bit because uh, Dave Morrow goes into some of the some of the tweets that was going out and go ahead and scroll down here a little bit. Okay. Some of this... <laughs> Like I don't even want to say it because we. Could, I don't I think mean, you should. We could be. This. We could be banned for saying this on YouTube. Just give you night. But this is some of the stuff that was going over on Twitter. Clarence Thomas is a dirty porch blank, and as a trans woman, I'm giving everyone permission to use the N word on him. All right. Let's look at another one. Clarence Thomas really wants to own slaves and be able to call black people in in front of white people and laugh. Blank ass mother blank. Clarence Thomas is just another dumb field blank. Go ahead and scroll down. Doesn't the blank realize his rights are next? Clarence Thomas is still a blank slave to his white nutcase wife, Ginny Thomas, and the Supreme Court is a blank mess. I can't say it any other way, but it's the truth no matter what you think. Now, here's what was fascinating. A lot of these tweets that were put out, white woke liberals. 
Of course. White woke liberal. It's almost like they were like, they had it pent up. They wanted to say it so bad. Almost universally white woke liberals. Oh, yeah. There was a couple of exceptions. They were all liberals. But yeah. I, this is something that I've thought about for a while, actually, that because the left is so fixated on identity politics, the minute that somebody deviates from – in fact, you actually talk about this. I want to give you a second to bring this up because talk about making the argument. Like there was a meeting that you had a few years ago. It might have been five or six years ago. You went to – I think it was the University of Virginia, mm-hmm. and um, you were talking to a group of students there. And you were explaining your general philosophy. This was very early in your days in the um, state legislature. I was actually still working in your office at the time. And you told me that there were four things that the left cares about more than anything else. And they want to put every single person in one of those four boxes. And I wanted to ask if you could, uh, you know, tell the audience what those four boxes are. It's your victim status. Oh, I think we were talking. It was like race. It was like race, gender, sexual, gender at that time, gender and sex meant the same thing, but it was like race, sex, um, economic status and sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Like those are the most four, th- those were the feet, the, the primary components of what identity was composed of. And if, and if you couldn't fit into one of those things, if you wanted to just be judged as an individual based off of your own actions, character, decisions, et cetera, didn't matter. You, you were in one of those four. Um, and, and if and, you deviate out of those boxes, oh, you were you were the enemy now, and th- and that's that's a perfect example of this, right? It's so if you if you fell within a category that the left prefers or gives like preferential consideration to, um, you, you're you're fine, but the moment you're in that box and you deviate from the message. Mm-hmm. They actually treat you worse than everybody else that they consider to be an oppressor. And you know the reason why they treat you worse? Because they treat you like a traitor. Because they always treat traitors worse than they treat the enemy. Yeah. That, 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 that's like a universal rule all throughout history. Well, I have a theory about this, and I have a little bit of experience to back me up in my theory. Um, a few years ago, I ran for office, and one of the things that I noticed is that leftist men were the worst misogynists toward me because I deviated from the left's talking points and I didn't regurgitate whatever they told me I needed to say um, because I would talk about, you know, I was talking about economics. I was talking about, you know, uh, gun rights, I, I, gun yeah. rights, abortion. Um, there, there were s- education, several things that we covered Um, and I had a situation where I was in a booth at a, uh, coffee shop and we had actually cleared this event with the coffee shop. They were hosting us and I was still trying to be careful of anybody else that might be in the area, you know, because they were still running their business, but I was, so we're sitting in a booth. I'm talking to these ladies. They're probably seventies. 60s, 70s, and then there's me and one of my staffers. And we were just discussing policies that were important to them. And as I was talking um, with these people, and it wasn't even anything uh, all that severe, this man gets up. Apparently, he had been listening to our conversation. He stood up and he just like slammed down his, his plate and he looked at me and he's like, thanks for ruining my effing meal, you effing blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, he said a bunch of very uh, derogatory things toward me. And 
um, it, it just shocked me and that somebody would come up and just spew abuse at a table full of women uh, in, you know, uh, some of them elderly. And this man would walk by and do that. And then he comes back and he said something about, you know, me having a, a forked tongue and and doing the bidding of of you know these evil right wingers or whatever. I mean, he he gave me so many expletives. I can't repeat them. And I mean, I was called the c word more times than I could count. Anyway, this man walks out, and everybody in there is now looking at me. People that weren't there to see me were looking at me and going, "I can't believe you had to." just deal with that. And this lady, um, someone says, oh, well, they're here for politics. And she looks back and she goes, oh, Republican. And uh, someone nodded yes. And she goes, oh, okay. So it was completely okay. And so here's my theory. My theory is that um, in the case that I dealt with, this is a man who really just doesn't like women. Um, and I find that with a lot of leftist men, they don't have any respect for women at all. And they walk around with this pent up, like explosive rage toward women that they're not allowed to aim at any of the women in their life. So as soon as there's a woman who deviates from the talking points and thinks for themselves, that woman is now fair game to abuse, say whatever you want to say. I mean, you could you could be as abusive as you want. And that is exactly how they're treating Clarence Thomas as well. And what what my theory is, is that they walk around with so much racism in their heart that when they see someone, they can feel okay about, they won't get canceled for spewing it all over them. They do it. And it's one of the reasons why they project it onto all of us as though we are somehow racist and we're not. And um, I mean, I, I, think, I won't I won't go further into it. It's just that's my theory is that these people are inherently racist. Well, I, I think the projection at this point, I think the evidence for the projection is obvious. And we're actually going to talk about that on a, on a totally different topic here later. We've talked about it before. It's this idea that they're, they're walking around so convinced that we're all racist and we're looking at them confused. Like, why? Why would you think that of me? But then you see something like this. It's like, oh, because you are. Yeah. Because you see people this way, it's just you assume the rest of us see people this way. Like, mm -hmm. I, there have been plenty of decisions by Eleanor Kagan, by Sotomayor, that I've looked at and I'm like, I completely disagree with that. I think their legal reasoning is garbage. Where do you find that in the Constitution? But, like, our minds immediately go toward, that's a horrible argument. Like, where did yeah. you even come up with that? Never once have I thought to myself, like, oh, I'm going to trash her for being a... a, you know, a lesbian or a Hispanic woman or a black woman. Like, I... That doesn't even occur to me, but it it's the first thing they right. go to the identity first thing, right? Because again, the first thing when everything to. is when everything is about when when your identity is completely comprised uh, of those four categories, right? It's it's race, it's sex, it's you know your uh, you know sexual preferences or or income, mm -hmm. right? When everything's right there, and they and they feel like they should be able to know everything about you and your politics based off of that. It's almost insulting to them that how could you possibly think this? Don't you know you belong to this category? Don't and, you know that you're a victim or that you're an oppressor? Yeah. Well, and and, and again, it's not just and, and for anybody that thinks like we're just cherry picking through Twitter, finding like crazy people. 
Nope. Chicago. Okay. I take that back. We are <laughs> referencing another crazy person, right? Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot makes a profane attack on SCOTUS, a pride event. F Clarence Thomas. And when it was brought up that, gosh, maybe this might not be the most appropriate way to engage with someone in an important debate. Her thing was, well, I said what I said. And you know what? The left ate it up. It's not as if, again, it's not as if you had a bunch of like reasonable elected Democrats that said, okay, you know, hey, Lori, I think you went a little bit too far on that. That didn't happen. They're retweeting it, right? They're, they're congratulating this. I bet you she gained 5,000 followers on Twitter after she did it. At least. She's just mad that she can't date Clarence Thomas. <laughs> That's all it is. So, Nick, Nick, give us a rundown on why Clarence Thomas is such a threat constitutionally, because we know he's a constitutional, you know, well, originalist. Here's, here's the interesting part, right? Um, I, I think most of the animosity on the court was directed towards Scalia for a long time. Right. In part because if you actually watch um, a SCOTUS brief or you actually watch as the justices are asking questions, Scalia was the one that interacted with the attorneys. Okay. Um, and, and he wrote a lot of opinions and whatnot, and, and Thomas did as well. It's it's not as if, but Thomas is not as active when it comes to asking questions of the attorneys. Um, but he will write some scathing, right. um, you know, uh, uh, concurrences or um, dissents. And ever since, I mean, you you got to go all the way back to when Clarence Thomas was first nominated for the Supreme Court. Joe Biden was the chairman of right. the Senate Judiciary Committee, yeah. and they did everything they could. I want to say there's actually been revealed uh, email messages from, or not even email, but there was re revealed correspondence, because it wouldn't have been email at that time, yeah. um, re revealed correspondence between uh Senator Ted Kennedy's office and others where they're basically saying, like, we cannot let this guy get nominated. They tried to destroy him yeah. in, in his – I mean, there's a clip. You could actually probably find it on YouTube of uh, Clarence Thomas addressing the court. So, like, they had all these – like, like, they they had oh, they, they called people in front of him that were, like, accusing him of, like, rape and, mm -hmm. and, and everything. Like, like, well, it was Anita Hill was the primary person that was coming forward to to claim like sexual harassment in the workplace against Clarence Thomas, and and what people were bringing up is like, well, okay, this is okay, this is a little strange because you literally followed him throughout his career, like you requested to go where he was, right. and um, the bottom line is is that when the American people heard the testimony that was provided, the vast vast majority of people were like this is a witch hunt. Like you, mm -hmm. you were literally just trying to destroy this guy because he's considered a conservative black justice and he was repa replacing Thurgood Marshall, who was the first black justice to serve in the Supreme mm -hmm. Court. Um, but it, it was an app, I mean, to the point where Clarence Thomas, when he gave like his final testament, I think he referred to it as uh, this was the this was the equivalent of like a, a, a high tech lynching, a high tech lynching um, that they went they went to such extremes to just try to destroy his character. Um, even though that like none of the things that he was being accused of had, had ever come up like previously right. in his, his entire tenure as a, mm -hmm. as a justice. It sounds like an even like greater attack than what the left tried to do to Kavanaugh. It is what happened. Yes. I think you're onto something because what happened to Kavanaugh at this point, you're talking like 40 years later or something or not 40 years later, but you're, you're talking like About what 30, 30 years later. Third, closer yeah. Time. Um, what happened with Kavanaugh was they just ran the Clarence Thomas playbook all yeah. over again. Is That's mm -hmm. basically what they did. And then they threw in a few other things, too, in order to try to derail that nomination. But what I find so fascinating about this whole entire discussion, and there's we're, we're about to get to this thing about Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. is I'm reminded with the attacks on Clarence Thomas and just the comments in general, going back to what Tina was saying, 
is that there was this poll that was done, I want to say it was two years ago, um, by the Cato Institute. And they um, they looked at every single American's, they, they surveyed like 3,000 people, and they surveyed them based on their political ideology, so from strong liberal to strong conservative. Um, and then they asked them questions like, how afraid are you to share your political views? Or are you afraid that your political views may affect your job or affect your, your career or your employment? And what they found was every single political demographic in the entire United States, in absolute majority, in some cases, you're talking about like almost 80% strong conservatives. Every single group except for one group said that they were concerned that the things that they would say or the or the views that they held might get them in trouble with other people or impact their career opportunities or result in them getting canceled or attacked or whatever it is that you want to call it. Every single group except for one. And the one group that said they had no issues and never felt like they needed to self-censor were strong liberals. <laughs> and the most the, the most crazy statistic that I remember from that survey was that for Republicans, higher educated Republicans, so I'm talking Republicans with a college degree, Republicans with a master's degree, and Republicans with a PhD. First off, if you've got a PhD, most of those people are Democrats. They're working in academia. But there are some Republicans that get PhDs as well, they, or, or, they, or they have a master's. And that same survey found that it was something like 60% of Republicans with a PhD said that they were worried that their political views would result in their career opportunities being negatively impacted, mm. and so they don't share it. Wow. And, it and that same number was only like 25% of Democrats said the same thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the left is angry with Clarence Thomas not just because he was pushing back against Roe or wrote a dissenting opinion, but he was also attacking the justification that was used to you know... Yeah, I mean, I mean you saw... And, and you saw, that, like, Hillary Clinton came out as well, and I thought this was... I mean, just... <laughs> You want, to, you want to talk about, like, no self-awareness. Hillary Clinton comes out and says, well, you know, I, I went to school with Justice Thomas. It, it, like, they were buddies in right. college. And, and she, said, she called him a person, a person of grievance. So Hillary Clinton, just let me set the stage here. Hillary Clinton called Justice Clarence Thomas a person of grievance full of resentment and anger. Now, I will concede one thing here. Hillary Clinton is an expert on being a person of grievance with a lot of resentment and anger. But I don't know that she can project her own characteristics onto Clarence Thomas and call that an accurate assessment. Because, again, Clarence Thomas has been on the court. He's like the longest-serving uh, member of the, of the court. Been on there like 30 years. Show me the history of resentment and anger and, and fury. and uh, it, it doesn't exist. It's and not there. But it doesn't matter. What this really comes down to is... They think, and, and, and when I say they, I'm not talking about every Democrat. I'm talking about the sort of people that make these comments see Clarence Thomas as a traitor. Doesn't he understand that the Democratic Party has the best interest of black Americans at heart and to do anything that, that might go depart from supporting whatever the Democrat position is? That's treachery. And that's why they think they, I mean, I, I couldn't believe this when they went around on, on Twitter calling Justice Thomas Uncle Clarence, right? Which is a reference to Uncle Tom. It's basically a racial slur. 
And I thought to myself, oh, is is that because Clarence Thomas is going around simping for an organization started by a white supremacist that wanted to disproportionately abort black children? Oh, no, he's doing the opposite of that. He's doing, No, that's the Democratic Party. That's the Democratic Party. They're the ones with not only a, a horrible history with respect to civil rights and specifically civil rights for black Americans. I mean, again, let's let's you want to talk about hard history, Democratic Party. OK, let's explore some the most well-financed, influential, powerful organization supporting white supremacy in the entirety of U.S. history was the Democratic Party. Period. Full stop. There is nothing inaccurate about what I just said. What you just said caused a half dozen Democrats to walk off the floor of the House of Delegates in tears. I think four it was four. Ago. I don't want to give myself too much credit. Oh, okay, almost a half. But can I can I just say one thing about Hillary Clinton real quick before we move on? Is it is really interesting to me that she wants to sit here and act like, oh, I went to the same school as Clarence Thomas. And almost like, oh, we were friends or something. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, but you know who you were friends with? Hey, there's this image. Can you put it on the right, screen? I'm trying to get it up, yeah. <laughs> Let me show you. Oh, I love when people say, I went to school. My dad went to school with Jeff Bezos. That doesn't mean, <laughs> <laughs> like. Let's talk about how much he Hillary Clinton loved Robert Byrd. Yeah. And some of the things that Robert Byrd stood for. And it's not on our screen, but they can probably pull it up in the video. I mean, well, for Robert Byrd was a, a grand, what, what do they call him, Kleagles in the Ku Klux Klan? Like he, I, he was like a, a higher-ranking person it. in the Ku Klux Klan. It's not, as if, it's not as if he attended a meeting once because he thought it was a barbecue, right? Like he no, was a high-ranking member. I mean, they were devastated when he died and because they were friends. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry, but how much of this projecting onto us what you yourself do, like, how, how are we supposed to deal with this? This just reminds me of that teacher in Hawaii who was like, oh, you guys must, you're so obsessed as if we want to show porn to children and you're all obsessed about this. And uh, this must just be you guys. Yeah. You guys are obsessed with porn with children. Oh, turns out this guy was actually creating porn and yeah. distributing it with a 13 year old boy. Yeah, two other teachers. I am sorry, but I am tired of, I am tired of the left projecting onto us what they are guilty for. Mm -hmm. But here's, here's the other thing that, um, you know, again, people are, are mad about Thomas on, and that's this whole substantive due process. It's this whole claim that, oh, well, Clarence Thomas really doesn't want there to be interracial marriage in America, which seems a little odd since he's married to a white woman, but okay, that's the claim. And really what, what was going on there, just so we can delve into the whole legalese of this a little bit, the substantive due process is, is part of this legal theory um, where there are there are enumerated powers within the constitutions, right? There are constitutionally protected rights, which are called out very specifically. And then you have the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, right? The Tenth Amendments talks about essentially state power. The Ninth Amendment essentially says that you shouldn't assume that because a right is not specifically called out in the Constitution, that therefore it doesn't exist. It's therefore reserved to the people or the states, right? And so we created around the 14th Amendment this whole idea that there are certain constitutionally protected rights that also apply to the states that didn't previously apply to the states. Like most people don't understand this. Prior to the 14th Amendment, the Second Amendment was not a restriction on state power. It was only a restriction on federal power. The First Amendment, not a restriction on state power. It was a restriction on federal power. Mm -hmm. How do we know this? Because you still had state-sponsored churches 
right, in, in, the, in the early days of the Republic. After the 14th Amendment, what was considered was that at this point, right, the, the constitutionally protected rights that, are, that represent limitations on federal power are also limitations on state power, right? Substantive due process was this way of trying to adjudicate certain things that the court was trying to do. So, for instance, um, you know, contraception. There was a law in Connecticut. What was it? Griswold versus v. Connecticut? Griswold v. Connecticut, yeah. Yeah, there, there was a law in Connecticut that said that um, I think it was non-married couples couldn't buy contraception. And the Supreme Court overruled that. And the Supreme Court overruled it on this idea of substantive due process, that you, you had a right to kind of engage in transactions and, we, okay, was this kind of private and could you do it? And, and honestly, if you look at Griswold, the result or the outcome is something that most people would agree with. It, it's an outcome that I'm willing to bet Thomas um, or Clarence Thomas agrees with. The question was, is did the Supreme Court have the authority to do that within our federalist system? And there's been a very good argument that this has led to a lot of problems because now the Supreme Court has repeatedly made decisions based off of substantive due process, which doesn't really have clear guidelines. Mm -hmm. Griswold is one of those – unlike Roe, where it, yeah. it, the policy itself is controversial, right? Obviously, there's millions of Americans, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions that think abortion kills a human life, yeah. right? Griswold is a bit different because especially today – I don't think that there's anybody that I know. Actually, there might be, but I don't really think that there's a strong movement to to ban contraception at the or, or I mean, maybe there's a debate over what counts as contraception. Yeah, yeah, sure. But but like the issue with Griswold is so so Roe was according to the Dobbs um, uh, uh, ruling. Roe was a policy objective in search of a constitutional justification. Is yeah. is almost the exact quote. I'm I'm paraphrasing. Griswold. Thomas believes that Griswold is something similar. The difference is, is that it's a policy objective that, at least by today's standards, is pretty much universally yeah, it, it agreed with. Now, I mean, I think you could make the argument that <clears> – I think you could potentially make the argument that from a 14th Amendment perspective that it is still unconstitutional because you're limiting people's ability to purchase a product based on their marital status. Oh, yeah. No, I think and I think if Griswold would have been decided – you know, more closely along those lines, you probably could have made a, a better argument for it. But again, all, all, all Thomas was saying on that, he wasn't saying that I want to completely undo the results of these things. He was saying, he was talking about what is the proper role of the federal government of the court with respect to making these decisions. And this goes back to the whole idea of that the Supreme Court was never supposed to be a super legislature. Yeah. It was never supposed to be the place that you went to get things done that you couldn't get passed through Congress or that you couldn't get passed through your own state legislature. And, and one of the biggest problems that we have right now when the left is constantly coming out and essentially saying, you know, we need to get rid of the Electoral College or we need to get rid of um, the Senate or we need to get rid of the Supreme Court when they do things you don't like is that, OK, part part of what we have in a in a federated republic is the acknowledgement that just because we're all Americans doesn't mean we agree on all things. And the way you allow people to still be one country without you know, constantly resorting to upheaval or revolution is you allow local states, localities to make certain decisions. And then the federal government covers down on those decisions, which are pretty much like instrumental to why the country exists in the first place. That's why things like the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's why the first amendment, the second amendment, that's why these things are restrictions on federal power. That's also why we have an article one section eight. Because yes. We outline what that federal power is supposed to be. Yeah. And what they're supposed to focus on at the federal level. And at this point, 
the federal government's focusing on things that was never designed, nor is it equipped, right. nor is it appropriate for it to do, not, not to mention constitutionally. And, and Thomas is speaking to this, and they're deliberately misrepresenting the argument that he's making. He's not saying, I think we should go back to banning contraception. He's saying, look, we need to start looking at substantive due process because it has led, it, it has led, in, in, even though you like the outcome in one area, it's led to a court being able to do things that the Supreme Court was never designed to do. Right. But I, I don't want to get too far down that uh, rabbit hole right now. I, I want to let's go to our let's go to the next thing that we're going to talk about because obviously we've seen we've seen the reaction directly to Clarence Thomas, and it was this this unhinged. I can engage in racist comments toward Clarence Thomas because he no longer he no longer gets the protection that he normally would if you march the party line if you walk the party line. And that's this is very important. Those four categories, right? Race, sexual preference, economic um, status, and um, um, gender. Yeah, gender. Right. If you if you have one of the, if you fit in one of those categories, um, you have to fit in one of those categories. Plus, you have to walk the party line with respect to progressive uh, progressive philosophy. The moment you step outside it, you're no longer safe. Clarence Thomas, no longer safe. Right. You see that. You see this with the the story that Tina just told. Right. Okay, she's a woman. Oh, but she stepped outside the thing. You're you're not a you're not a liberal woman. So now we can attack you. You're going to see this with um, ACB too. She hasn't gotten it yeah, to the yeah. degree that Clarence did because he wrote his his concurring opinion where he talked about yeah. these other things. But like, I guarantee you. Oh, you, you that already, she's going to be attacked just like he yeah, is. You, you already you already saw that, and now you're starting to see this next level attack. And this is coming from a group called Jane's Revenge. And Jane's revenge is, I don't know, what are they? They're, they're kind of like the Antifa of the pro-abortion movement. Uh, I because, mean, they're using the anarchist A symbol in there, so, yeah, which is so ironic. I've never understood, side note, I've never understood why left-wing, socialist, progressive, big government groups like to present themselves as anarchists. Because yeah. they're not. By no. definition, they're not. No. Because anarchy is the absence of government. It is yeah. literally the exact well, opposite of what these people Do you know what, what they base that want. off? Again, another rabbit hole. You know what they base that off of? So if you read Karl Marx and you read what his in conclusion was with respect to the, the perfect communist state yeah. is that at a point there would be no more state because we would have created this new communist man, this new communist woman, and we wouldn't require these political structures. But again, that's cool ideas. Never notice happened. how we never get there. Yeah. Notice how we only get to the totalitarian state and then it kind of stops. No, no more progression. But anyways, Jane's Revenge starts going and attacking um, crisis pregnancy centers. Now, th this is a picture of graffiti. Let's show up the next one real quick. They've like broke some windows. They've also got some graffiti where they basically said that if if abortion ain't safe, they, and they said it this way, if abortion ain't safe, neither of you. That's a direct threat. And, and again, if you think this is only coming from like crazy people, okay, again, caveat, this is a crazy person, but poor me, Lee Carter, <laughs> former delegate. <laughs> Former delegate. This was this was the only socialist. He, he ran as a Democrat because you know six and one half a dozen. Anyway, but he was the only socialist elected in a Southern legislature, and he was he was in there for a couple. Hang on, I think we need to rephrase that to say he was the only person who admitted that he admitted was a he was a socialist. Yeah. He, he proudly proclaimed that he was a socialist. Um, like would regularly go on Twitter and just like drop f bombs at anybody that had anything negative to say about him, and was constantly claiming that people were targeting him. And I've got to be in an undisclosed. Closed location they specifically people thought people threaten. were targeting you, targeting him because of you oh, personally. It, well, that was one of the times it was my fault. But here's what's interesting. Here, here's poor me, Lee, 
Poor me, Lee Carter. By the way, he lost his primary. Like his own constituents was like, "Yeah, you're you're a crazy person." Yeah, they just found a better package for their socialism. And, and he said, "He said, oh damn! Apparently, someone vandalized the Crisis Pregnancy Center at 3701 Old Forest Road in Lynchburg. Crisis Pregnancy Centers pretend to be abortion providers and give a bunch of misinformation to people seeking abortion. And there's one at 3701 Old Forest Road in I Lynchburg. Won- he's he's obviously encouraging people to I attack. I wonder it. why he'd put the address." Twice. Oh yeah, twice. But you only have so many characters. You don't have them. to be. It, it doesn't take a genius and to he's know not. exactly. <laughs> you by you get this over and over and over again. There there are so many. This is only one example that we're getting because it's Lee Carter and it's it's actually really easy to kind of make fun of him. But he's not the only like. You just go on Twitter and you search for the addresses for either pregnancy centers or if you have the addresses of the Supreme Court members and then you you paste that into twitter you will just find tweet after tweet oh, yeah. after tweet mm-hmm. i like i know that we were showing that one tweet from that guy that like made himself famous because he literally said i am going to assassinate yeah clarence, clarence thomas. thomas like there, there there was um there's blue check mark accounts corporate blue check mark gaming accounts that yeah. are like dedicated to like minecraft they were talking about how you can put supreme court justices into minecraft you know the reason why that would be the case speaking as a I, I'm about to make myself sound like a giant nerd, but speaking yeah. of somebody that enjoys Minecraft a whole lot, the reason you do that is because you can you can code into Minecraft mobs that you fight and that you can kill. Mm. And you can do that in a game and you can get away with it. And then you can't actually say, oh, I'm doing any sort, you know, thre-. it's a way for you to get around any sort of actual direct allegation that you're you're threatening somebody with harm. I yeah. think but I think. Th- the fact that it's coming from corporate accounts. Yeah. Here's how you can code Minecraft in order to put Clarence Thomas in it as a creeper. So that way you can go and kill him. Yeah. Like it's it 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 is it's incredible how the same group of people that constantly claim victim status, that constantly claim that they're standing up for the little guy, that that like the left is all about grievance politics. And the second that they lose their their sacred cow that they've had for 50 years, their constitutional right, which never really existed to begin with, to kill yeah. people in the womb, suddenly, you know, this is an act of violence. Oh, but dismembering, you know, infants yeah. in the womb, that's not an act of violence, right? But saying that states have the ability to regulate this, that's right. an act of violence. It, just give me a break. I think this is 100% confirmation of something that you say often, Nick, that the left is far more comfortable with violence than the right is. Oh, it's absolutely true. It's it's confirmation. No, it's it, it is it is absolutely true. Um, and, and again, uh, on a side note, we all thought it was kind of funny because you know, again, Lee's this big socialist, and he he lost his primary. He ran for governor. That went well. Lost his primary, and then got out and bought a piece of property. And the, him and they were talking about how excited he was to own property. We're like, whoa, 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 there, Kami. Be careful. What do you mean own property, you filthy bourgeoisie? Anyway. <laughs> So, yeah, so once, once again, we're, we're seeing this trend, right? It's okay because Clarence Thomas stepped outside the realm. It's okay to treat him this way. Because people are mad about abortion, it's okay to advocate violence because, after all, abortion is an act of violence. So why not commit acts of violence against these crisis pregnancy centers, which, oh, by the way, are providing the very resources that they're always claiming we don't actually provide. And a lot of the resources that Planned Parenthood claims to provide but doesn't. Oh, it, it's it's again, it goes back to this whole idea of you only care about babies in the womb. You don't care about them after they're born. Crisis pregnancy centers are specifically set up to not only provide counseling, ultrasounds, um, but they also provide once the the 
baby is born, mm -hmm. they go back to the crisis pregnancy and they provide diapers, they provide formula, they provide other resources in order to make sure that that mom has the support. Yeah. They also provide resources to try to get the father involved and fulfill their responsibilities right. as a, if, if not as a husband, at least as a father. But that was one of the first organizations that they attacked. And, and I got to say right now, a, a crisis pregnancy center masquerading as a, I can tell that Lee here has never been to a crisis pregnancy center. Um, you know, like, <laughs> you go into a crisis pregnancy center, I'm sorry, there's not a lot of confusion about what it is. They, they will, they will tell you about your options, but they are, they are very adamant about trying to convince you to keep your child Yeah, and then providing you whatever help and assistance you need, emotional, spiritual, financial, in order to help you make that decision and to come alongside you. And, you know, but again, can, but let, let's go Can ahead. I add something? I, I know you want to move forward, but I... I just want to make a quick prediction because there, there uh, is because we're talking about the Supreme Court, they are going through and systematically correcting a lot of really bad decisions that were that were were activist sort of decisions. It's kind of like when it when it uh, it was funny because somebody mentioned how many executive orders uh, Trump had, but every exec every executive order can only be undone by executive order. So. So many of his executive orders were just undoing previous executive orders. So um, I saw somebody tweet that, you know, well, if you can just overturn whatever uh, a Supreme Court says, then I guess, you know, what's the point of the Supreme Court and is nothing constitutional? And I just want to look at them and go, uh, you realize Dred Scott was that kind of a situation, too, and that well, was overturned. Yeah, Plessy we had versus an amendment. Ferguson. We had an amendment to get rid of that, but Plessy versus Ferguson yeah. was overturned by a future court ruling. Oh, yeah. Brown right. versus Board of Education yeah. overturned okay. Plessy. I don't see a lot of liberals going, I can't believe they over... What about stare decisis? I've actually got a yeah. question oh, about oh, wait, that. No, I'm not done. Okay. I'm sorry. You got <laughs> to no, okay. wait. I, it's okay. Um, so since we're talking about correcting bad uh, um, decisions... We are actually watching and waiting for West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency mm -hmm. uh, because you thought the left went completely insane over Roe v. Wade. Watch what happens when all their environmental policies can't be enforced by executive fiat anymore. You'll see some you'll see more Ted Kaczynski's. <laughs> um, I've got a question that I think you might be able to answer, and I also think the audience might care. Going back to some of the Supreme Court interpretations of things like, um, you know, the, the questions of due process and stuff like that. So we know that Plessy versus Ferguson was, you know, the court ruling in the late 1800s that, you know, established the whole principle of separate but equal. Mm -hmm. And then that was overturned a couple generations later that announced that, you know, separate but equal was unconstitutional. So what would you say is the difference between Brown versus Board of Education that said separate but equal is not equal and not constitutional versus, say, Griswold or Lawrence v. Texas or anything that has been relying on the same argument that, that Thomas is saying Roe relied on for its – constitutional justification. I think there's, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, stare decisis is essentially, you know, to stand by things decided. It's, it's to say that once something has kind of been in, in, enshrined in law, uh, for a long period of time, it's, it's not generally a good idea to just upend it. Mm -hmm. Now, 
as they pointed out when they had the whole stare decisis argument with respect to Roe, it was like, well, this was something that was, this was not something that was rooted in a in strong constitutional reasoning. It was basically done by judicial fiat. And no, it's, it's not good to let those decisions stand. The whole separate but equal was problematic for a number of reasons. I mean, one, when you look at the composition of the court, you definitely had justices that were essentially they had to, political motivations. They, they were trying to they were trying to prop up, which was what was a horrible policy, and being utilized in Jim Crow to essentially set up completely unequal uh, things within the area uh, of segregation, Jim Crow laws, even before Jim Crow laws. But essentially, that's what it was. It was they were they were obviously engaging in this practice where they were discriminating against. Um, you know, specifically, you know, black children, black people in general, black mothers, when it came to everything from schools to hospitals and, and whatnot. And it was obvious at the time that they made this decision. And so they were trying to, they were trying to play with the language in such a way to suggest that you could theoretically have the sort of segregation that was being done um, and, and still provide, you know, equal accommodation. Well, that obviously was not the case. And, and Brown v. Board of Education was able to go back later and I think determine on a number of levels that, that that was never the intention of what was going on and that Plessy versus Ferguson is essentially had, had held up something that was in direct violation of what the 14th Amendment was attempting to accomplish. So the 14th Amendment was all about, no, if you're a citizen of the United States, you, you have access to due process of law and there are certain things that you as a citizen cannot be denied or, or cannot be used within the law to discriminate against you based off of like your skin color or your sex. And there was clearly a number of policies within um, you know, the Jim Crow South that were designed to do exactly that. And so I think what Brown was doing was, you know, the reason why we don't stand on stare decisis for something that was poorly decided in its inception mm -hmm. that didn't have proper constitutional justification is because it was bad then. It's not going to get any better simply because you've, you've attempted to normalize it over several decades. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's, I think the core distinction between something there versus something like Griswold. The, the idea would be, um, and again, I'm, I'm not necessarily advocating overturning Griswold. I'm just saying that Thomas is absolutely right when he talks about the problem of substantive due process, as opposed to looking at things through the lens of the federal government has certain authorities and the federal government does not have other authorities. So what I was interested in, the reason I asked that question is because I, I mean, you know, I see stuff on the internet and I've got friends that don't necessarily agree with me politically. And so I've heard a lot of arguments that like, oh, this is the first step. Right. And so like, some people will say, oh, Griswold's next, or Lawrence is next, or yeah. Obergfell is next. But I've heard other people say, Loving is next. Yeah. And I've heard other people say, Brown versus Board of Education is next. No. And so I, the reason I asked that question was because I wanted to see, you know, for our audience, is there an argument that could be made to refute what I think is, quite frankly, ridiculous assertion that that Thomas is laying the groundwork for a return to Plessy versus Ferguson. I, I think you could make like, so for instance, when you look at, um, when you look at Brown v. Board of Education, when you look at Loving, when you look at any of those, what you're essentially doing is that I, I think you can make a very good 14th Amendment argument that, and, and again, Loving was another case, right? Where, um, you know, in, in Virginia, they tried to suggest that, no, 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 we're not discriminating. We're just saying that you you can't have interracial marriage. Yeah. So and so, and, the, and the and what they said was like, no, we're not discriminating because whites can only marry whites and blacks can only marry blacks and you know and and that was their argument and it's like so it's not discrimination like well no you're discriminating against the power of that individual two individuals to engage in a union to, for which there's there's no other legal um, 
uh, legal prohibition, right? So we're not talking about an adult trying to marry a child, right? We're not talking about we're not talking about someone engaging in polygamy. We're saying that there's there's no other you know sound basis for legal prohibition other than you've come up with an arbitrary distinction. In this case, being right, you know that this person happens to be black and this person happens to be white. Um, and so I, I don't I don't see how you can use even what Clarence Thomas is saying about the some of the problems with judicial creep within substantive due process and use that against loving. Yeah. Um, and now, again, part of the issue with all of this, I don't think we meant for this podcast to be about this, but it is meaningful. Part of this whole debate has to do with the fact that if you understand that deciding everything at the federal level can have potentially good consequences in some situations and potentially horrific consequences in other situations. If you understand that, then you're a little bit more open to this idea that, well, I don't want the federal government to control all of these things because when they make a bad decision, all 350 million of us are affected and there's nothing you can do to escape it except hope that Congress changes or hope that Congress changes in line with the executive branch. And the whole, it is so necessary to understand this. We are a republic of republics. It was designed that way on purpose. It was not by accident. And it was all based around this idea that 13 original colonies had different ideas about things. And some of those ideas were great. And some of those ideas were horrible. But the idea was is that if we're going to come together in order to have a, a, a federal union, a federal government that is going to handle certain issues that the states are not suited to handle on their own, things like common defense, well, then we have to have enumerated powers and responsibilities between what the federal government is responsible for and what the states are responsible for. And there's plenty of times in history that you can look at it and say, yeah, but those states are making really bad decisions. And that's what the 14th Amendment was in, in some ways designed to try to prevent is to say that, okay, we're, we're, we're done with this. We're not making decisions based off of race with respect to whether or not you're a U.S. citizen and entitled to certain protections. And that's what we saw with the, uh, the 19th Amendment. And women's suffrage. Hey, we're not going to – you cannot infringe on a woman's right to vote or participate in the political process based off of their sex. right? And, and these, were, these were positive changes that happened within the Constitution in order to prevent states from doing things that we think were completely outside the character of what it meant to be a part of the United States of America. Through the amendment process. Through the amendment process. That was the proper way to go about it. But now we've gotten into this thing with substantive due process where it's like, well, if I don't like what this state over here is doing or I don't like what this – well, then I just need a Supreme Court to decide in my favor and create a – and what you end up doing is creating constitutional crises. You, you end up blurring the lines on what the federal government is responsible for versus what the states are responsible for. And, and as much as they might like it when the Supreme Court decides in their favor, they're all learning right now that that can change. And so the real answer is, okay, well, then why don't we get back to understanding what the proper roles are with respect to the executive, the judiciary, and the legislature, and with respect to what the proper roles are between the federal government, the states, and the individual. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, are you always, always going to end up with the perfect? No. But what you prevent is this top-down approach where now the federal government or nine unelected judges impose a decision on 350 million people and you're stuck with it. 
And that was never supposed to be the that was never supposed to be the way that we we did business here in the United States. And and by the way, for those people who look at like, okay, yeah, that's great. So you want to go back to the era where the Southern states could you know get away with Jim Crow without the Civil Rights Act or without substantive? No, I don't want that. But I also want to remind everybody that once upon a time it was federal law and supported by the Supreme Court. That if there was a runaway slave, if someone made it from a slave state to a free state, you had to give them back. And it was states like Wisconsin that stood up and said, we think this is a violation of the 10th Amendment. You can't require, just because you have the Dred Scott decision doesn't mean you can require the, the state of Wisconsin to assist federal marshals in returning people back to a status of slavery. We think that's a violation of the 10th Amendment. We're going to question that. We're going to challenge that. So that was a case in the opposite direction where you had a state that was trying to do the right thing by its citizens and was not permitting the federal government to come in and tell them to do otherwise. So let's just, let's just be honest that everything that we have within government is a tool and it can be used for good and it can be used for ill. But if you give too much power to a centralized authority to be able to impose its will, you're going to like that decision one minute. You're going to hate it the next. Right. And. This is the last thing I'll say to this because there's a couple other things that want to bring up in this show. But what I find so frustrating about the conversation that we've been having as a country the past, what, week now? Close to a week? Yep. Has been this false perception that the Supreme Court is the one that is imposing its will. Like it's an right. activist it's not. court. It, 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 the thing is, is that the, the Supreme Court is not imposing its will on this country. All that the Supreme Court, there, there's, there, it, there's a lie that's being perpetuated on the internet that the Supreme Court has outlawed abortion. It's factually incorrect. Incorrect. Supreme Court didn't impose anything. All the Supreme Court, it, what the Supreme Court did was it took this issue from the federal level and gave it back to the states like it originally was before 1973. That's not imposing its will. It would be imposing its will if it did what it did in 1973 and right. what it did in 1992 with Casey when it said, uh, no, Alabama cannot do this or Mississippi or Arkansas or Texas. They cannot limit abortions after fetal viability or whatever arbitrary metric that the Supreme Court decided to come up with. This is the heart of the Dobbs decision. This is what Thomas and Alito and the other justices were getting at. When they, when they talked about how Roe is a policy decision seeking a constitutional justification, which is what conservatives have been talking about for so long, that the court should not be legislating from the bench. Mm -hmm. There's good things the court could do. There's so many things I'd love for the court to legislate from the bench <laughs> if I could just snap my fingers sure. and get my way. But we don't do it this way because – and, and the left doesn't seem to realize this. The same people that are out there saying we need to pack the court or we need to abolish the court, they would have – they would not be saying this if they were in charge of the court. Yeah. What these people want is they just want their end state, and it doesn't matter how they right. get there. If, they, if, it, if it means follow the constitutional process, fine. If it means violating the constitutional process, fine. And you know what? If it means firebombing pregnancy centers and vandalizing them and calling for the assassination of Supreme Court justices, that's fine, too. All right, Nick. So moving on to the making the argument section, I'm going to play the role of the leftist in this situation. And I think that the Supreme Court made a conservative decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and did so in an activist way. So I, I think here's the problem with that reasoning, in my opinion. The Supreme Court did not come in and essentially say that we're going to overturn Roe v. Wade because we think abortion is bad. They actually didn't render any sort of decision with respect to the morality of abortion. What they said is, is that Roe was improperly decided because there's no constitutional justification for limiting the states or the people within the states 
to be able to vote on this individual issue. And it's important to understand that within our constitutional structure, you have the federal government, you have state governments, and you have the individual. And what the Supreme Court did in 1973 was create a prohibition on states and their popularly elected assemblies being able to make their own laws with respect to their disposition toward abortion. So the court was not coming in and saying there's now a federal ban on abortion. The court was simply saying this was improperly decided, much like other decisions within U.S. history have been improperly decided by the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court has gone outside of the boundaries that the Constitution places it within. And so we're going to return this back to the states and their popularly elected assemblies where it always should have been. Asterix, I'm playing the role of leftist. Okay, so Roe v. Wade was the only thing standing in between the 14-some states immediately making abortion illegal in their states. And I don't care about the Constitution. I don't care about, you know, separation of powers. All I care about is abortion being legal across the country. Well, and, and again, this is the problem. Why do we then? Why do we have any political system whatsoever? If this is all just about one side of the discussion being able to impose their will on everybody else, then essentially what you have is you don't have a democracy. You don't have a constitutional republic. What you have is mob rule. What you have is who can impose their will, who is most willing to, in order to use violence in order to get other people to either do what they want or take from other people what they want. And that's not what our system is designed to do. We understand that there are differences of opinion on a whole host of issues. And the big part of society and, and what you know the government getting its just powers from the consent of the government, what that's supposed to be about is the idea that we have a process that we go through in order to decide what the law is, and that's through the legislative process. We have a process with respect to which branch of government executes those laws. That's the executive. And then we have a branch of government that is supposed to determine whether or not a law passed by the legislature is a violation of the federal constitution. And when that process is followed, we have a mechanism that you or I, even if we disagree on, mm -hmm. we can look at and say, okay, this is a process that we're able to engage with. It has certain objective rules by which it is supposed to operate. And because of those things, we're generally willing to concede to the decisions that are made. But if this is going to be something where anytime you get a decision you don't like, we no longer follow the electoral process or we no longer want the Supreme Court around anymore, well, that doesn't mean you and I all of a sudden suddenly agreed right. because those institutions went away. What it was is you took away the relatively peaceful institutions that we use to adjudicate these differences and replace them with what? Mob violence? Yeah. All right, taking my leftist hat off. If I want to make the argument yeah. that the Supreme Court initially was uh, operating as an activist court mm -hmm. and the de original decision of Roe was not even in uh, the best interest of those on the left, how would I make that argument? Oh, I, I think it would go like this. So if, if you look at some of the other bad decisions that we've had within the history of the United States, so Plessy versus Ferguson, we discussed that earlier. Um, if you look at um, Dred Scott, um, so Plessy versus Ferguson was, was overridden essentially by the interpretation of the 14th Amendment with Brown versus Board of Education. Dred Scott was overrode by both the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, and the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed due, due process of law. Um, if you look at women's suffrage, women's suffrage wasn't decided because the Supreme Court came and said, I can't believe that we're restricting women's right to vote. The Supreme Court came in and said, or, or excuse me, the, the voters came forward through the women's suffrage movement and passed a constitutional amendment. And so 
it's important to understand that if, if you're going to rely on the Supreme Court to adjudicate all the differences or to correct what you consider to be ills of the past, and you don't actually properly enshrine it in the Constitution, if you don't do the hard work of going through the constitutional amendment process, then essentially what you're saying is, is that you don't believe you have enough popular support to do what you need, and so hopefully you'll get five out of nine unelected judges to make the decision for you. And that's very dangerous territory because it essentially subverts the process. The same people that are saying democracy are now relying on one of the least democratic institutions right, within right. the government to make these decisions for them. Oh, but five more justices are going to have that. <laughs> well, and, and again, I, I think what this comes down to is that it, it is really important. Um, it's really important to understand something here. Again, we are a republic of republics. The whole idea was is we, we don't assume that everything is going to be decided perfectly through the political systems uh, that we've established. We, right. don't, we don't assume that. What we've assumed is a preference for individual liberty, and individual liberty is rooted in the idea that you have inherent worth and that provided that you are not infringing on the liberty of somebody else, you should be able to live your life the way that you want. Right? That, that's the deference that we give within our system. It's not just the democratic process. But in order to help preserve and protect that, we say that when a law is necessary, we've established a certain system for determining what those laws should be and what the jurisdictions are with, to those, with respect to those lawmaking bodies. And when it comes to the federal government, <laughs> there is a reason why we put strict enumerated powers on the federal government in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. And it's because we recognize that you might be happy with a federal decision, but a federal decision affects 350 million Americans. Right. And if, when they get it right, great. But when they get it wrong, they get it really wrong. Not to mention the fact that there is a whole host of other decisions that are not necessarily rooted in some sort of moral premise. Right. There may be just different preferences with respect to how somebody wants to live in Florida versus how somebody right. wants to live in Massachusetts. There's different ge uh, geographical concerns, economic concerns, et cetera. So we, we protect certain basic essential liberties, and then we understand that even though it's not perfect, it's better to let Massachusetts decide things for Massachusetts and sure. Florida decide things for Florida. And if you're going to say, nope, I don't want any of that, I just want the feds to decide it for all of us, I, I'm sorry, you're going to wind up with a lot of problems. All right, last question. So I obviously am an individual, I, I do not have my leftist head on, that wants to see abortion illegal across all 50 states and ultimately for abortion to be unthinkable and unnecessary in America. But if I'm in a conversation with the pro-abort right now, right after Roe was overturned, I'm probably not going into that argument attempting to change their mind on abortion but justify the result of overturning Roe v. Wade. And I think one of the arguments I would try to make is that allowing each state to decide this individually for the meantime is good for everyone and that states' rights ensures that, you know, this state can do this and this state can do that. But how do I convince the person of that when all they see is the people in these 14 states or however many states have some restrictions on abortion that's not California or Massachusetts or any of these leftist states? How do I convince them that each individual state being able to make this decision for their people is the best thing? Well, I think you have to ask what's the alternative? And if they say the alternative is, well, seven out of nine unelected judges decided that they couldn't have such restrictions, well, then the thing I would ask back is like, okay, well, if you can play that game, then the other side can play that game. So if in the future, seven out of nine unelected judges 
Well, let's say five. Sure. Five out of nine unelected judges come in and decide, you know what? We've decided that we find in the con sufficient constitutional justification to say that there should be a universal ban across all 50 states. Now, you might not like that decision, but do you get to complain about it anymore? Because you told me right. that the way that we make these decisions is the judges decide. The way, the way we make these decisions is we impose things from the federal level. We, we don't even have a vote on it. So if you're willing to accept that paradigm, understand you probably won't like it when the other side decides right. to play the same game. And so I, I think it's important to once again res respect something. We all feel very passionately about what we believe. The reason why we've set up the process we do is not because it's perfect. The reason why we've set up the process is because it has the best chances of us being able to adjudicate problems without resorting to violence and force against one another, like outright violence and force. I mean, you can always make the argument that, you know, a law is, is enforced by violence, sure. But it's the idea that this is one of the most peaceful mechanisms we can come up with. And, and I think that that's one of the big problems that I see with a lot of people on the left is they look at this and like, well, but we liked it better before. Okay, but the the process was manipulated sure. to give you what you wanted. If you really like that, great, go out and make an argument and convince your fellow citizens that this is the way that they should vote. Yeah, that's hard work though. It, it is hard work. <laughs> you know the phrase that they use in politics, you know it, that politics is ultimately the adjudication of power. Yeah. And the beauty of what we have here in the US is that the founders, when they created our constitutional structure, our Federalist Republic, as you called it, the Republic of Republics, we, we recognize because a lot of our founders were also students of history and they looked back at many of the republics throughout history. And there weren't many, by the way, it's worth remembering that when the United States was created, most of the world were absolute monarchies mm -hmm. or some form of monarchy. And so the founders looked back throughout history. They looked at some of the most famous republics. Rome is, was the most famous before. And they realized that if politics is inherently about deciding who rules over who or what decisions are decided and imposed on other people, there's, there's a, a proper way to go about doing that that involves public will without the mob, right? That, that you're, not, you're not making whoever shows up with the most number of people with guns, they get to decide what happens. There's a proper way to do that through checks and balances, through the division of power into three co-equal branches, through the division of power between the federal and the state um, and, and state governments. And they also realized that there was a dangerous way to do it, which is the way that quite frankly for – I'd say 90% of human history is how it's done, which is whoever has the most swords ends up making the rules. Yeah. And folks, we've been down this road before as a country. And when we get to a point where the institutions that hold our country together are no longer considered of any worth or value, again, we, we have been at this point before and the results have led to depending on the estimates, somewhere north of 600,000 dead Americans. Mm -hmm. And I think that the direction that the left is trying to take our country in terms of, you know, treating institutions like they're nothing more than a means to an end. And if they're not achieving that end, then get rid of them. And treating the opposition like they're evil and physically threatening violence against anybody that stands in their way, as we've seen today, we are moving towards a direction that we have not seen as a country probably since the 1850s. And if we don't change pretty soon, we're not going to like what's going to happen next. And that is not a threat. That is not a promise. That is a warning. 
And I'll leave it at that. Well, I think that's probably a good place to stop. Yeah. Once again, thank you for joining us. Also, leave us a comment. Let us know if uh, we answered your questions on this. We had we went over some tough questions with things like substantive yeah. due process, the role of the court. What would it look like if you had an activist conservative court? Like we went over all of those things. So if you found that helpful, please let us know. Leave us a comment and always like and subscribe. Once again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick. And once again, thank you for listening.